Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. You can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. You can read the first 12 verses. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Father, as we contemplate this message of your prophet John, Lord, we ask that you would prepare the way in our hearts by giving us the grace of repentance. Give us ears to hear your word as it is proclaimed. In Christ's name, amen. John the Baptist has been called the last of the Old Testament prophets, which is a little bit anachronistic because he comes 400 years after technically the last of the Old Testament prophets. And yet, I think there's some justice in thinking about John in this way because his message is a very Old Testament message. It is a message that you would have heard from the prophets of old. Indeed, we did hear this message from Zechariah. John, as we see in our text, he comes preaching repentance. He calls the people to repent of their sins. That's exactly what the prophets had done years before. The prophets of Israel had always called the people of Israel, to repentance. John calls people to repentance as he's announcing the presence of the kingdom. Well, the prophets had done that too, only in a future tense kind of way. They had called people to repentance in anticipation of the kingdom that is to come. What John did was call them to repentance in light of the kingdom that had come, the kingdom that was now at hand. But if you think about your Old Testament prophets, you think about their life stories, and you try to compare John the Baptist to those guys. You ask yourself, who does John the Baptist match the best? For me, the answer to that question is going to be the prophet Samuel. Because if you think about Samuel's birth, the way that his mother Hannah went and prayed for a child because she didn't have one, and this child was special and dedicated to the Lord, 
You think in the way that Samuel was the one who was to anoint King David, the man after God's own heart. You can see John the Baptist is essentially fulfilling a similar role. If you go to Luke's gospel, you see that he too had a, a similar birth narrative. John the Baptist was born to parents who had no son and longed for one. He was born with a promise, with a mission on his life from God. And as we'll see in the last half of chapter 3, he is the one to whom it falls to anoint the king of the spiritual kingdom when he baptizes the Lord Jesus in the River Jordan. So when we contemplate John the Baptist, we can see a coming together of Old Testament and New Testament, something Matthew's gospel is always pushing upon us, showing us the way that they fit together perfectly. We're not going to get into the details of John's birth from Luke's gospel, but if you got my email yesterday, I recommended that you go back to a December 2017 sermon called Benedictus, which is about the song of Zechariah, not Zechariah the Old Testament prophet, but Zechariah the priest who was the father of John the Baptist. And in that sermon, you'll get all of the story, what happened around the birth of John the Baptist. Uh, just to give you the, the highlights, his father, the priest, goes into the temple and there is confronted by the angel Gabriel. The angel Gabriel announces the coming of this son, John the Baptist. Zechariah was a priest without a son who served the nation without a prophet. And now the word of Gabriel said, you will have a son and that son will be a prophet. He will be really the ultimate prophet because he will be the one who not only prophesies of the coming of the king, but announces the arrival of the king and will actually see the king face to face. Zechariah, when he receives this word from Gabriel, he sings a song. Uh, well, not immediately. He's actually unable to speak for a season. When his son is born, he sings a song. And in that song, he includes a charge to the infant John the Baptist. In that charge, he says, Go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And that's exactly what he's doing when we meet him here in Matthew 3. He is fulfilling the mission that he's been given by God. So Matthew gives us kind of a breakdown of John's ministry. Really quickly, he shows us what John did, what he said, what he fulfilled, what prophecy he fulfilled. He even tells us what he wore and what he ate and what the result of his ministry was. And he does all of that in the first half of our text, the first six verses. John came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. So he immediately begins this ministry of, of preaching to the people, but he's doing it in the wilderness. People have to come out of their cities, out of their ordinary lives, and be drawn to this message of repentance. They meet him in the wilderness. That's what he was doing. And what he was saying, his message, was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Don't let the phrasing confuse you. He's not saying, repent so that the kingdom of heaven can come. The act of repentance does not precede the coming of the kingdom. He is saying, repent of your sins because the kingdom is at hand. So, chronologically speaking, kingdom first. The kingdom has arrived. The kingdom is here. That makes the timing perfect. Now is the time to repent because the king who we have longed for 
is at hand. We're told that in doing this, he fulfills the prophecy about Isaiah. We get another one of these fulfillment formulas. Right? This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So once again, Matthew is, is showing us all of this is happening according to God's plan. All of it is happening to fulfill his word. When he describes the appearance of John the Baptist, I find it fascinating because it shows you some of the things that don't translate well over time. Because when it says John the Baptist is wearing a camel hair coat and a leather belt, I'm like, oh, cool. Was he wearing wingtips? Did he have a bow tie? But they don't mean a camel hair coat the way we might wear or even a leather belt like we might have. This description of his appearance is meant to show how like, rustic he is. He's a man of the wilderness. He's like a subsistence kind of guy. He's living off the land in this rough kind of way, which his diet suggests. You might think, honey, that's nice. I have honey at home. It's, it's in a, a bottle shaped like a bear. That's not the kind of honey that John the Baptist was sustained by. He was sustained by wild honey that he found out in nature and by locusts, which fortunately we don't eat. So you can see there's something there cluing us in that this is different. This guy is sort of like, when you think of like the desert fathers in the ancient church, people who went out of, of the cities, went out into the desert and, and suffered and persevered and endured in order to be closer to God. That's the kind of prophet that he was. These are all things that would be like badges of prophecy. So that people would recognize, oh, he's one of those guys that we've heard of from the Old Testament. He's a prophet. The result of his ministry was repentance. The people confess their sins, we're told, and they are baptized in the River Jordan. This is why he's called John the Baptist, not John the Presbyterian, sadly. John the Baptist, because what's unique about his ministry is this act of baptism for the remission of sins. Now remember, baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament. This is something being inaugurated now. It's something different. And what's significant is that he's administering this rite of baptism to people who've already been circumcised. People who are already in the covenant community are receiving this sign of baptism with its particular significance. That's something worth noting because we're seeing uh, not only continuity between the Old Testament and the New, but also difference. Something is coming to fulfillment. Something is coming to fullness. So the mission of John the Baptist is to call sinners to repentance. But we also see him doing something else. He calls sinners to repentance, but he also rebukes hypocrites, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who come to witness what's going on. He calls them out. He rebukes and warns them. That, too, is part of the prophetic message, a call to repentance, but also a message rebuking and warning hypocrites. But all of it is happening because but the foundation of his ministry work is the coming of the kingdom. He warns people who are hypocrites. He calls sinners to repentance because the kingdom is here. Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For us, this message of John, despite the passage of so many years, is still one that resonates because this is still the gospel call that we have in our own lives. We still are called to repent, to turn away from our sins, so that we might have the way into the kingdom prepared. Repentance is how we prepare the way into the kingdom. 
It is through repentance that we enter into the kingdom. And in the kingdom, of course, we live according to a different pattern. When you live in the kingdom of heaven, you live according to different rules than in the kingdom of man. The kingdom inaugurated by Christ is different. To reflect first on the call to repentance, this may seem really basic. Well, of course, repent of your sins. We're always saying stuff like that in church. But hearing this message in this time from this man shows the centrality of repentance to the gospel. There is no gospel without repentance. There is no way to prepare the way without a repentance, a turning away from sin. So John, in his message of repentance, is announcing the eminence of the kingdom, the presence of the kingdom. He's doing that in order to emphasize that the time has come. Don't be indifferent. The time has come. Repent. Turn away from your sins, which means leaving behind the kingdom where you now live and move and have your being to enter into a new kingdom that operates differently. Turn away from your sins and embrace righteousness in the kingdom of heaven. That's what he means when he calls us to repent. The way you enter the kingdom is through repentance by confessing your sins. It's not a new thing. This is a familiar message to anyone who lived in Old Testament times. Anyone who lived in the nation of Israel would have heard messages like this. Holiness had always been the chief concern of God. And so an offense against God's holiness was always catastrophic. And God's prophets always urged people to turn their back on their sin and on their idolatry and return to the presence and the worship of God. What's new here is the presence of the kingdom. Because John isn't preaching what you might think of as like a gospel of future hope. Like he's not saying something like what I might say to you, which is repent, turn from your sins, and one day Christ will come again. We will die, but we will live again. We will be raised as Christ was raised. John's not saying that exactly. What he's saying is repent and believe because he's here. Repent and believe because he's coming in the sense of he's going to be here in the next verse. Like right after I'm done talking, he's going to come to the Jordan. He's imminent. He is at hand. And so there's a sense of urgency to John's message because the gospel he's preaching is being fulfilled in his moment. That's what's new that an age of fulfillment has dawned, that they are entering into the the last age, the, the end times, as it were, where God is beginning to fulfill all of the promises that he made. The point, of course, is to recognize that it is the coming, the presence of the kingdom that drives John's message. But he's not urging people to repentance in the hope that if enough of us repent, Jesus might come. He is saying instead, Jesus is at hand, so repent. Repentance comes after the reality of the kingdom, not before and is not its cause. In fact, you might look at it this way, that the kingdom is the cause of the repentance, not the other way around. That the repentance is part of the work that the king is doing in inaugurating his kingdom. John's baptism is a baptism, as he describes it, with water for repentance. And in his baptism, 
we have, just as in baptism, that we administer a picture of the gospel that is being proclaimed. Right? Both sacraments, both sacraments are pictures or representations of the gospel that we proclaim in words. If you have eyes to see, you recognize the same truths being enacted in those things. So when you see John in the River Jordan baptizing people for the remission of sins, you recognize what he's doing. Pictures that turning away, that entering from one kingdom to another. The significance of where he's doing this actually adds further clarity to that vision because he's doing it in the River Jordan. When we studied the book of Joshua, you may remember the crossing over the Jordan into the land of promise. Right? The people of Israel had been promised a future inheritance. In order to reach it, they had to cross the River Jordan, which they did. And so crossing the Jordan becomes this way of thinking about entering into the promise. And we use that metaphor occasionally. You might hear people talking about crossing Jordan based on the song, and they're talking about dying, crossing over from this life to the next. But here, the idea is more passing from one kingdom to another, passing from what we might call the kingdom of sin and death into the kingdom of life, which is ruled by Jesus Christ. So, even in John's baptism, John emphasizes the way in which all the Old Testament calls to repentance really never come to fruition until Jesus comes. He's baptizing, and he's doing something that we often do when we baptize as well. He's qualifying what he's doing so that you don't misunderstand it. John is baptizing all of these people for repentance of sins, and he immediately tells them, actually, there's, there's a better baptism coming. Don't put your trust in what I've done. Recognize that what I've done is somehow incomplete. It only points forward to something better. There is a greater one coming, and he will baptize you more fully. When Jesus comes, he will baptize you, not with water, but with the Holy Spirit and fire, which puts you in mind of the altar of Hebrew. Our God is a consuming fire. Like That will be a spiritual baptism, a spiritual induction, as it were, that the physical only points to. That the, the physical sign points to the spiritual reality. And here you have those things coming together where the, the, the physical sign of water points to the spiritual baptism that will come with the arrival of Christ. So in all that, we see a message of repentance that it's really similar to the Old Testament message, but also is, is changing, is growing fuller, because the kingdom is here, and the signs of the kingdom are changing. The sacraments of the kingdom are changing, transforming, not only physically changing, like from circumcision to baptism, but also changing in the sense of, of physical to spiritual, having a, a spiritual fullness that the physical points to. That's one aspect of what John does. But the other aspect is his rebuke of the hypocrites, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's interesting to wonder what they're even doing there in the first place. And that's his question. Who told you about all this? These people come, they witness what's going on, perhaps even participate in what's going on, present themselves for baptism. Now, these weren't the same people historically, the same individuals who had consulted with Herod on the interpretation of prophecy, but the same type of people. 
the Pharisees and Sadducees were sort of the, the ruling factions, the religious factions, you might think, the conservatives and the liberals, basically. Whenever they're spoken of this way, kind of together, we're talking about the religious establishments of Israel. They were in the pocket of the powerful. And here, suddenly, they're showing up. But John doesn't receive them and say, well, it's awesome. I mean, it's cool to have random people repent and be baptized. But it's even better when people of influence and power present themselves and, and come to hear my message, because now I can really shape the culture. Instead, he rebukes them. He calls them out publicly. He shames them, as it were, for their hypocrisy. Okay, but what are they doing there anyway? Well, I think as spiritual leaders, they're doing something we often see spiritual leaders do. They're following the people. Because everybody's coming out here to see this thing. Everybody's participating. They have a natural concern that the people who follow them are getting away from them. And that the answer is they need to get ahead of this thing. They need to be a part of it. They need to co-opt this thing. If they're going to allow their people to be baptized in the river, then maybe they need to go witness it and perhaps even participate in it themselves. So perhaps a motivation like that was involved. It could have been just as simple as this. If, if all the religious people, all the people with sensitive consciences are going out in the wilderness to be baptized, and you are a leader of a religious group, it doesn't look right if you're not there as well. The sincere people will start to question your sincerity. So it's good for you to be seen at this place of spiritual renewal, an ancient version of what we would call virtue signaling. You want to be seen to be doing something good. But what it indicates to us is not everybody who's gathered is gathered sincerely. Not everybody who presents themselves, even for baptism, is there because they have repented their sins. People respond for a lot of different reasons, and sincerity is just one of them. They do it to show that they're good people. They do it to maintain their power or influence. They do it because other people are doing it, because everybody does it, because that's just what you do. John is harsh with these people. The reason that he's harsh, the reason that he calls them out, is because in that kind of hypocrisy there is no salvation. There is an appearance of goodness, but there is no actual grace in that. To go through the motions, to be baptized because everybody else is being baptized, to show up because all the spiritual people are doing it, because it looks good, there's no salvation in any of that. And John wants to counsel them, to warn them, to kind of push back against the idea that merely appearing to be good, merely appearing to be righteous, is enough to save. These religious and social motives for following Christ are insufficient and they're rightly rebuked because hypocrisy can get you into the church, but hypocrisy can't get you into the kingdom. There's a difference. When he rebukes them, it also reveals a little bit about their hard condition because what he says shows kind of the reason, like why it is that he's able to see that, that they're not here sincerely. John knows that their actions aren't sincere, and he can see what it is that they're trusting in instead of trusting in Christ. But he knows that they're not genuinely repentant because they don't bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So he charges them to do that. Look, you should bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you're really repentant, actually turn from your sin and stop doing it. Instead, they're presuming on something else. They're not 
considering themselves righteous because they've turned from their sin. They consider themselves righteous. They consider themselves righteous because of their ethnic identity, because of who they are. They think they are righteous. Now, repentance involves turning away from sin. And turning away from something always means turning toward something as well, turning toward righteousness. So actually doing good things instead of doing bad things. That change, as simple as it sounds, accompanies true repentance. If you repent of your sins, it doesn't bring perfection. You don't suddenly go from being a a terrible sinner to being a perfect little saint. Sometimes the differences are so tiny that you question whether there's any difference at all, but there is change. Repentance in this life doesn't bring perfection, but it does bring change. Sanctification doesn't cause justification. It's not that if we repent enough, then we will be saved. Rather, salvation, justification, that comes first, and repentance, sorry, sanctification follows out of gratitude. But there isn't such a thing as justification that doesn't lead to sanctification. That those who are justified, those who are truly repentant, will always turn to righteousness. The degree of sanctification varies. Our confession of faith says it varies quite a bit. You might see great progress in one life and very little progress and a lot of backsliding in another, but the Spirit is at work and there should be fruit. There should be fruit. So this message, John is giving similar to something Jesus will say shortly, that we already alluded to, by their fruit, you will know them. A person who thinks that he's righteous because he is a Jew because he is, as John says, a son of Abraham, is simply deceiving himself. That ethnic security, we're we're Jews, of course we're righteous. He's calling that out. He's saying you can't put your trust in that. And Paul will make that clear later on in Galatians 3 and Romans 4, that it's those who share Abraham's faith who are the sons of Abraham. That you are Abraham's sons if you believe in the God of Abraham. If you trust in what Abraham trusted in, you don't get it through physical birth. You get it through spiritual birth. The stones that John refers to, that that God is able to turn into sons of Abraham, he is referring to Gentiles. The Gentiles that that will be brought into the kingdom, that, that will find out that despite the fact that they were born outside the kingdom, they are sons and daughters of the kingdom as well, that their dead stone hearts have been brought to life by God. In the same way that at the triumphal entry, Jesus will refer to the very stones that will cry out. It's an echo, too, that we'll see in Matthew 4 when uh, the temptation of Christ occurs and Satan encourages him to turn stones into bread. So you can see... A connection here, you repent and then you rely on Christ's righteousness, that's one option, or you believe in your own righteousness and then you don't have to repent. These hypocrites already believe they're righteous. They have no need for someone else's righteousness. They have no need then to repent. Anything that you think makes you righteous apart from Christ is hypocrisy. Anything that you think makes you righteous, apart from turning from your sin and turning towards Christ, makes you guilty of the same error that these Pharisees and Sadducees were. They showed up thinking they were already good. 
And if you're thinking that, then you've succumbed to the same lie. If you think you're righteous by virtue of your birth, you think you're righteous because you're a good person, you think you're righteous because you hold right social or moral opinions, that you're on the right side of history, if you think you're righteous because you think for yourself, you're not some sheep, you, you make your own choices, all of those are deceptions. And putting your trust in those things instead of turning from your sin and turning towards Christ, well, that's the reason the rebuke is there. To get our attention, to shake us from our complacency and make sure we're not putting our trust in any righteousness apart from Christ's. He warns them the tree is being shaken. He warns them the axe is out. That the covenant tree is about to be pruned. That the satisfaction they may have had in the idea of ethnic salvation, they were just born into the kingdom and that they were here by right, that's going to change because Jesus is coming and Jesus is going to lop off some branches. And the branches that remain will remain because of faith. We say oftentimes rightly that there is no salvation outside the church. In other words, you don't believe in Christianity and Jesus as a philosophy, but not worship him. People who believe in Jesus worship Jesus. That's what Jesus calls them to do. There's no plan of salvation that, that operates outside of the community of faith. Because the Christian faith isn't a philosophy, it's a faith that you practice. But by the same token, there is no salvation in the church apart from Christ. We can say there's no salvation outside the church, and that may sound like, well, just come to church and everything will be fine. But there is no salvation in the church apart from Christ. Whether you identify as a Jew, you identify as a Christian, if you identify as a Presbyterian, none of that matters apart from faith in Jesus Christ, because it is faith in Christ that saves. Ordinarily, Jesus doesn't save people and then leave them alone outside his church. But without faith, whether you're inside or outside the church, there is no salvation. So the warning is, it's good that you're here. Thanks for coming to church. But you're supposed to be here. Taking off that box won't save you. Just being here is not enough. But faith is enough. Simple faith in Jesus Christ is enough because the kingdom of Jesus Christ is here. The kingdom is not just at hand, the kingdom is here. We emphasize this a lot, but it, it bears repeating. We're not waiting for Christ's kingdom to come. Christ's kingdom has come. We are already seeing the work of Christ coming into fullness. And when we talk about that kingdom, we always say already and not yet. But it is already inaugurated. It is not yet complete, has not yet reached its fullness. But when Jesus comes, and John makes it clear, the coming of Christ in that first advent is the inauguration of his kingdom. And we've already seen Matthew establish this idea of a conflict of kingdoms, conflict between King Herod and King Jesus. And now John comes out into the open. He announces what's going on here is the arrival of a kingdom. And now there is a choice that must be made. Which king will you follow? Which kingdom will you live in? When he introduces the king, if you think about it, in Matthew's gospel, this is the introduction of Jesus. 
strange as it is, if you go back over the ground that we've covered, Jesus hasn't really been in the gospel yet, the gospel of Matthew. He's sort of been alluded to as the child, right? We've gotten him sort of as, as, as a, a member of scenes that we can picture, especially with the wise men. He hasn't done anything. He hasn't said anything. He's been kind of an object of concern, but he hasn't entered on the stage, and he still hasn't. Right, we're in chapter 3, we're getting the, the ministry of John the Baptist. Jesus won't even appear on the stage, as it were, until right after this, which we'll look at next time. So everything that's happened so far is Matthew's introduction of Jesus. And everything he's telling us about Jesus is he's king. He's mighty. When he was born, he came from a line of kings. When he came into the world, wise men came to honor him and worship him as king. And now his prophet has come and has announced the presence of his kingdom and him as king over it. And he's shortly going to baptize him as a form of anointing the king of that kingdom. And when he describes Jesus, he says, he who is coming after me is mightier. The king that he announces is the mighty king, the mighty king Jesus. So Jesus is being introduced to us as one who is mighty, one who is full of power, one who reigns over a kingdom. Although we won't see the fullness of that until the gospel progresses, and we certainly won't understand all the implications, he's being brought onto the stage so that we can appreciate that he is full of power. Where John is baptized with water, Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire, from the physical sign to the spiritual reality, as we said. But John has warned of pruning. Jesus is bringing the axe, and Jesus will bring in the harvest as he describes it. So we go from warnings, or hints of what we might call temporal justice, to the reality of a cosmic justice that Jesus administers. So we get his lineage, we get his childhood, we get the announcement of his coming next time in Matthew 3.13. We'll actually see Jesus enter the stage. And then in verse 15, he'll actually speak for the first time in Matthew's gospel. So we have all this as a kind of prelude for us to savor and to reflect on everything that's come before. As we consider it, there's two angles that I want you to think about. Two things I want you to consider about this part of the narrative, the ministry of John the Baptist. First, think about the men, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, who went to Jordan to witness this thing. As I said, they weren't the actual historical men who had colluded with Herod, because that was 30 years or so earlier. So, so it's possible that there were some who were still around, but they were kind of in the same fellowship, let's say. But these probably are some of the same men who later on at the crucifixion will be leaders in those communities who will lead the people in a certain confession of faith. You go to John's Gospel. The moment in John's Gospel where the people confess their faith, where they reveal who their true king is. It is the moment when before Pontius Pilate, they all cry out, we have no king but Caesar. And you better believe that when the gospel authors include lines like this, they intend for you to understand the spiritual arc that has taken place. That the people who are supposed to be the leaders in the land of Israel have hinted and alluded to a reality that they don't speak out loud 
until that final moment when they reveal where their allegiance really is. We've seen them as hypocrites. We've seen them assisting Herod in in the attempt to kill baby Jesus. But eventually, at the crucifixion, we will see them admitting, we do all this because we're just serving our king. The king we've chosen is Caesar. We have chosen the king of the physical kingdom, which is where our trust is placed. So these men who were present at the inauguration of the spiritual kingdom would finally renounce it utterly in those words. There's something tragic about that realization, that it would be possible to witness these things. It would be possible to see. Imagine being present for the baptism of Christ. And then at the crucifixion of Christ saying, I have no king but Caesar. It's unfathomable, and yet we're surrounded by people who do exactly this. People who are in the church, but not of the church. People who in their lives choose to be ruled by the king of this realm, not the king of the kingdom of heaven. So the charge, obviously, is don't don't be one. Don't follow after the the king of this world. Don't put your trust in these physical blessings, but rather seek the spiritual. The other thing to reflect on is this. John the Baptist himself, as you know, later on, is going to wonder about what's happening right now. John will look back. He's announced the kingdom. He has announced the coming of the king. With great certainty, he's spoken about the identity of Jesus Later on, he will send messengers to Jesus just to ask, are you the one? Did I get this right? And you scratch your head and you wonder. Some people say, well, John the Baptist, he'd had a tough time since then. He's in prison. Maybe he's just not certain what's going on. I don't think that's what's going on. I think the reason why John the Baptist has these doubts is because although he announced the kingdom and its king, he still didn't quite grasp the nature of that kingdom or that king, just like the disciples didn't. If the disciples, after Jesus' resurrection, could turn to him at the beginning of the book of Acts and say, okay, are you now ready to bring in the kingdom? Showing that they didn't understand, they still thought this is going to be a physical kingdom, that the, the, the king has come to throw out the Romans, when in reality the king has come to, to vanquish sin and death and hell. You just didn't get it. I think here you see in John the Baptist as well, you can be a part of something, you can be close to it, you can believe in it, but not fully understand it. Which is true for all the saints of the Old Testament, and let's be honest, true for us as well. We don't always comprehend the mysteries, we don't always understand what it is that God is doing in us or around us, and that's okay. Because it's possible to serve in the kingdom without understanding the nature of the kingdom, and the way that you do that, again, We're drawing from from words Jesus Jesus hasn't spoken yet, but you do that by seeking the kingdom first. Not seeking the physical first. Not seeking the, the, the needs that you feel that you have first, but seeking the kingdom first and trusting that everything else will follow. Even when we don't comprehend the nature of the kingdom, to seek the kingdom is the way. When you're tempted to think only of physical blessings, You're tempted to think what what you need from God is for him to fix your life and to make things better. Remember that that physical deliverance is not all that you need. It's not even the main thing that you need, that what you truly need is something spiritual, 
the transformation that you truly need is the transformation that brings you into the spiritual kingdom of Jesus Christ and gives you the grace to live there. Remember then to trust in the promises of mighty King Jesus who has brought a mightier repentance and a mightier kingdom than anything that we've experienced before. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.